0: This is the Nietzsche podcast. What is morality? The question here is not which morality should man follow, but rather, what does it mean to follow a morality? What is the moral need in mankind such that we should have all of these competing ideas about morality in the first place? Without conceiving of any particular moral code, can we come up with a principle, a general principle to explain man's creation of moral codes in and of itself, assuming, of course, that they are created and not handed down from on high? This is a central question in Nietzsche's philosophy, and it has an answer to that question that we're going to first seriously examine a very famous idea of Nietzsche's, which is the will to power. Um, Because having dug deeper and deeper in our inquiry into morality, eventually you have to hit bedrock, right? And for Nietzsche, the bedrock of reality is will to power. And by the end of this episode, hopefully I'll have conveyed to you what that statement means. <clears throat> We've talked quite a bit about morality leading up to this episode, to the point where you might be wondering uh, how it could be that there's more to say about it any of this, but to that I would just simply say uh, we will not exhaust the topic even here. But just to briefly recap, um, we've discussed Nietzsche's rejection of morality as premised on supernatural um, premises, um, and how he believed that our modern morality was still based on these supernatural premises. We've considered how Nietzsche approached morality from more of a descriptive lens than a prescriptive one at least when it comes to many of his big ideas concerning morality such as the master and slave morality those two forms of morality um are they're, they're classifications of different super types of morality and so that's a to call something master or slave morality is a descriptive statement we've also discussed how nietzsche tended to view the human being as primarily driven by instinct and passion um and how our intelligence, our restraint, our moral codes, everything about man, which we consider good and noble derives from baser origins in human biology. And since reason is not a supernatural force and the ego is not a magical thing, such as a soul created by God, we can even identify the uh, voluntarily governing free will as yet another prejudice we've inherited from supernatural origins. So from this viewpoint of a purely descriptive perspective on human beings and human behavior and human actions and their consequences and so on, it's from this perspective that Nietzsche makes his judgments throughout his work about the moral codes of various societies and about the moral ideas of various uh, philosophers and individuals. You may recall the passage I've cited, I believe a few times from the the gay science, aphorism number 354 in which Nietzsche says that consciousness developed because of the need for a collective net of communication between human beings and that if we lived as solitary beasts of prey we would not have needed consciousness and furthermore he says that language determines our conceptual horizons that our thought is bounded within the cultural linguistic network that we are born into and raised in. And a core set of concepts within that network is morality. And this is why Nietzsche says that morality is the herd instinct in the individual. And um, that what most people experience as a moral intuition, or as the voice of their conscience, is actually enculturated rather than innate. And, you know, Nietzsche's evidence for this is that an immoral act in our culture could have been performed by somebody from another culture with a completely clean conscience, such as the Spartans leaving malformed babies to die of exposure. What this all points to is morality as a voice of the collective, which is to say morality is the power of the collective, which takes root in each individual in each of its constituent parts and the form that this power takes is our moral sentiments and so we might remember just another final piece to this the fragment we discussed from Nietzsche's notebooks in the 1870s that for the community's morals to be imposed what's necessary is that a feeling must be suppressed by a thought that means if we have a feeling a passion a drive of some kind towards something uh, something upon which the community has set its ban then we bring before our mind's eye the consequence of breaking the moral code and we what what might stop us from indulging in that is the that we experience the fear of the power of the community <clears throat> we can and this is why it's a feeling being suppressed by a thought because we have to be able to conceive of that later in the passage of time um, something worse will happen to us. We have to be able to d- delay gratification or delay fulfillment of something or to, to even cancel out the fulfillment of a desire um, if it doesn't fit with the community's morality. Um, this is all rather... Um, this is very, uh, I would say, explanatory of many things, and yet we haven't quite gotten to the bottom of things, right? Because while well, we might understand how each individual comes to possess these moral sentiments through all the means we've just discussed... Um, even though they're created as what are effectively social constructs, um, we still haven't really given an explanation for the activity of moralizing itself. What is morality? Why is mankind a moral animal? These questions remain unanswered. And Nietzsche's answer for this is found in Zarathustra, in the section called The Thousand and One Goals. And I'm going to read Kaufman's translation. Quote, Zarathustra saw many lands and many peoples, thus he discovered the good and evil of many peoples, and Zarathustra found no greater power on earth than good and evil. No people could live without first esteeming, but if they want to preserve themselves, then they must not esteem as their neighbor esteems. Much that was good to one people was scorn and infamy to another, thus I found it much i found called evil here and decked with purple honors there never did one neighbor understand the other ever was his soul amazed at the neighbor's delusion and wickedness a tablet of the good hangs over every people behold it is the tablet of their overcomings behold it is the voice of their will to power praiseworthy is whatever seems difficult to a people whatever seems indispensable And difficult is called good and whatever liberates even out of the deepest need the rarest and most difficult that they call holy whatever makes them rule and triumph and shine to the awe and envy of their neighbors that is to them the high the first the measure the meaning of all things verily my brother once you have recognized the need and land and sky and neighbors of a people you may also guess the law of their overcomings and why they climb to their hope on this ladder, End quote. and uh, skipping a little further down into the passage, uh, Zarathustra continues quote, verily, men gave themselves all their good and evil, verily they did not take it, they did not find it, nor did it come to them as a voice from heaven. Only man placed values in things to preserve himself, he alone created a meaning for things, a human meaning. Therefore he calls himself man, which means the esteemer. To esteem is to create. Hear this, you creators. Esteeming itself is of all esteemed things the most estimable treasure. Through esteeming alone is their value, and without esteeming, the nut of existence would be hollow. Hear this, you creators. End quote. So first thing here, um, When Zarathustra says he finds no power greater on earth than good and evil. Um, I think that's one reason why it's a bit tongue-in-cheek when Nietzsche calls himself uh, an immoralist, for example. Because the way that Nietzsche is an immoralist is in his willingness to violate his own community's moral assumptions um, in the course of his psychological investigations of mankind. But those same psychological investigations are sort of attempts on Nietzsche's part to get to the heart of understanding morality. Um, And and his project ultimately here is not to call morality itself bad or to regret or lament the existence of this or that cultural morality that has existed or does exist. He wants to understand the force that is morality and understand its power um, because it is the most powerful thing so far created on earth. Um, And what he says the core of morality is um speaking here of morality as such of the human capacity for moralizing um it's self-overcoming that is what is at the heart of every morality that has ever existed each morality is the voice of a culture self-overcoming it's um this is nietzsche's attempt to discover a genuine uh, a genuine generic definition of morality and um as for what that means I'm just going to, I'm going to go ahead and quote from Kaufman here uh, in his book, Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist. This is right at the beginning of chapter seven, which is page 211, the edition I have, where he talks about the difference between creating a moral code and what Nietzsche is doing, which is creating a generic definition of what morality itself is. Um, And it's essential that we understand the difference in what we're talking about here. So here's uh, Kaufman quote, what is at stake? is clearly something different from any attempt to develop a system of ethics. Even a very brief contrast with Kant and Mill shows this. Kant insisted that man is not morally good unless his conduct is marked by the total absence of any psychological inclination and motivated solely by respect for reason. And Kant opposed all other views of morality as sheer perversions. John Stuart Mill, on the other hand, did not similarly repudiate Kant's ethics. Rather, he claimed that, quote, to all those a priori moralists who deem it necessary to argue at all, utilitarian arguments are indispensable, end quote, and deduced Kant's moral philosophy as his prime example. To this extent, at least, Mill, instead of opposing his own utilitarianism to other conceptions of morality, seems to have advanced it as a formulation of the essence of all moral codes end quote Um, and then Kaufman then includes a quotation from Kant himself quote without any inclination solely from duty only then does it have genuine moral value end quote so just to make clear that Kant believed in morality as a sort of purely rational activity of the human being that a moral act had to be strictly motivated by duty and duty in the Kantian ethos is uh something arrived at by reason moral acts cannot be calculated according to the pleasure or advantage they give which is the way mill does it so um anyway back to the text kaufman goes on to say quote mill could include kant's ethics within the fold of utilitarianism only on the basis of a crucial misunderstanding of kant for expediency was not a matter of concern for kant at all moral worth was to his mind solely a function of the rationality ie consistency of the maxim according to which the action was resolved any inconsistency he thought might be made explicit by universalizing the maxim and determining whether its universal adoption would give rise to a situation in which the maxim could no longer be applied whether kant's ethics is preferable to mills is not the question here but as a generic definition of morality utilitarianism would fail to include kant's morality nor is Kant's the only one. The force of his ethics is due in large part to the fact that he crystallized elements that had long been implicitly in the Western religious tradition, which commanded man to do good because God willed it, regardless of consequences, end quote. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's relatively clear. Um, uh, Even you could, (laughs) because I could foresee the objection like, oh, well, every moralist tries to come up with a generic definition of morality, right? But ultimately, um, when you look at the moral axioms they're operating from, they are mutually exclusive, and um, that's not really what Nietzsche has aimed at. Um, what he's looking for, actually, is an element, a key element that exists in both systems, the element that leads us to say that what Kant was doing was morality and what Mill was doing is morality even in spite of the differences between them right what is it about the activity of moral philosophy that is present in both works now what it, Kaufman does go to go on to say and his argument is that the key element in both systems is a uh, drumroll here self-overcoming which is what um Barrett, The way we've put it before so what do we mean by this what is the commonality between these incompatible moral systems of both kant and mill not to speak of you know christian morals and islamic morals and buddhist morals and so on what is the thing that they're all doing even as each system which is individually produced um can be reasonably said to be in competition and contradistinction to all the others right so that activity and the nietzschean argument is striving to overcome oneself, which means to withhold some instincts or drives, because remember, your instincts and your drives are you, they are inherent and inborn in the individual. So withhold those from being fulfilled, which means emphasizing some drives and diminishing or canceling others. It means setting bans and taboos on certain behaviors while making others prestigious or praiseworthy. This is, um, what we mean when we're talking about self overcoming. The individual strives not to preserve him or herself as they are, um, just as the community that applies the moral code is not striving to preserve itself um, exactly in the same form either. What morality is aimed at is not self-preservation, but um, self-perfection in Nietzsche's view. One aims to discard their current imperfect form in favor of something which is more refined, stronger, healthier and ultimately more powerful and so this is Nietzsche's explanation for morality then Um, through things like asceticism through denying oneself uh, short-term pleasures and blind impulses um, or through devotion to duty or through cultivating patience through all of these things which are part of the moral activity of society uh, morality has been mankind's attempt to become something greater than it is it's not contrary to what many moralists have claimed uh today like an outflow of the urge to self-preservation um in Nietzsche's view it's quite the opposite it's the urge of becoming and the goal of this process of becoming is uh the expansion of power and I'm gonna quote Kaufman again uh page 213 uh because he puts it so well uh quote That Kant's ethic, as well as, say, the Ten Commandments, exhibits this character seems clear, and the element of self-overcoming is no less essential to the utilitarian position. The force and plausibility of utilitarianism are inseparable from its insistence that the individual must overcome himself and subordinate his own interests to those of the greatest number. In so-called primitive moral codes, too, the element of self-control and the disciplining of the inclinations is invariably present self-overcoming may thus be considered the common essence of all moral codes from totem and taboo to the ethics of the buddha End quote. and a little further down Kaufman uh, says quote nietzsche's position can be established more firmly by considering the form a moral code would have to take to elude his generic definition such a code would not place any restraint on the individual and would have to permit him to act on impulse. While this position is conceivable, it would be in accordance with common usage to refuse to call it moral. A man who adopted it might state his case thus, I repudiate morality and prefer to act on impulse, quote. So where does this lead us? Um, so morality is self-overcoming. What does that mean? What is being overcome? Impulse. Impulse is overcome. By, by what though? By man's reason? Well, no. If you recall from past episodes, reason is not considered a governing force to Nietzsche, but rather is itself an instrument of man's will. Logic, the intellect, and the passions, all of these are manifestations of the same thing, which is the will. And since the will, the way that it manifests in our experience is as impulses, um, which are themselves reducible to this will, This means that impulse must overcome impulse, which means the will must overcome the will. That's why it is self overcoming and to what end to become something greater, which is to say to become something more powerful. If this feels all rather abstract at this point, um, then I'd say let's, I'll try, I'll try and bring it down a little more to earth in terms of man's existing moral systems. So Nietzsche roundly criticizes asceticism and genealogy of morality. Um, asceticism, of course, being, you know, the priests and the religious devotees of the major religions who deny themselves all sorts of earthly things. Like they took cel- celibacy vows and ate, you know, uh, just the simplest, you know, flavorless foods, subsisting on barely anything and spent all of their time meditating or in contemplative prayer or whatever. Or, you know, even in the more extreme examples, there's like self-mortification practices and fasting and all of that. Um, So Nietzsche criticizes asceticism and genealogy of morality. Um, He calls it the impulse for cruelty directed inward, directed at oneself. Um, But he also says in the final aphorism of that book that if not for the ascetic ideal, man's life would never have acquired meaning and man would never have have risen above the other animals. So what this means is that without the moral pressure of religions and remember religious taboos were the original form of morality without the moral example of the priests and the saints and these moral taboos um, without this like spiritualization of the overcoming of the impulses Nietzsche says we never would have developed reason. What? So why does he say that? Well, it's because the community's power depends on the individual being able to suppress their feelings with thoughts, as we've said, by thinking out his actions and recognizing, you know, um, when they're, when you're thinking, Hey, I might want to just take this food without paying for it because I'm hungry and I'm bigger than the guy who owns it. Right. That's well, that's a blind, impulsive behavior. And in the long term, that kind of behavior, you know, that won't work out for the community if everyone behaves that way. And so this is done the suppression of that kind of feeling that kind of desire fulfillment just saying I want this I'm going to take it um this is that that suppression is done by the community making those actions bad or sinful and threatening the individuals who do the bad actions and thus compelling the individuals to have to remember themselves to remember the community's morals and withhold gratification as we've gone over before to withhold from the fulfillment of their desires and so this creates a pressure for the development of self-knowledge and for the, the capacity for delayed gratification. And so those are human capacities which are shaped by morality. And be somewhere in the application of those, you have a pressure to become reasonable. And that's reason is the form or, or it's the fruit of the community's self-overcoming through morality shaping its members into something more perfect, which is to say the individuals begin to act in a way which is more harmonious with the goals of the community as a whole. And as we said, it's done through the fear of the community's power. Um, there is a there's, So without reading that passage again, um, in his notes where he talks about that, there's a different passage in the dawn, aphorism number 18, he makes it clear that this elevation of mankind um, was consequently achieved through cruelty and suffering quote the least step forward in the domain of free thought and individual life has been achieved in all ages to the accompaniment of physical and intellectual tortures and not only the mere step forward no but every form of movement and change has rendered necessary innumerable martyrs throughout the entire course of thousands of years, which sought their paths and laid down their foundation stones. Years, however, which we do not think of when we speak about world history, that ridiculously small division of mankind's existence. And even in this so-called world history, which, which in the main is merely a great deal of noise about the latest novelties, There is no more important theme than the old old tragedy of the martyrs who tried to move the mire. Nothing has been more dearly bought than the minute portion of human reason and feeling of liberty upon which we now pride ourselves. But it is this very pride which makes it almost impossible for us today to be conscious of that enormous lapse of time preceding the period of world history when morality of custom held the field and to consider this lapse of time as the real and decisive epoch that established the character of mankind, an epoch when suffering was considered as a virtue, cruelty as a virtue, hypocrisy as a virtue, revenge as a virtue, and the denial of reason as a virtue. Whereas on the other hand, well-being was regarded as a danger, longing for knowledge as a danger, peace as a danger, compassion as a danger, an epoch, when being pitied, was looked upon as an insult, work as an insult, madness as a, deb- a divine attribute, and every kind of change as immoral and pregnant with ruin. You imagine that all this has changed, and that humanity must likewise have changed its character. Oh, ye poor psychologists. Learn to know yourselves better, end quote. I love that last line, too, because telling the psychologists to know themselves better, which he's right. It is very ironic. Many of them don't seem to know themselves. So this is another example of Nietzsche differing from enlightenment thinkers on the origin of, of reason and by uh, by extension on the origin of moral values. Um, it's it's why he writes in Beyond Good and Evil, aphorism 23 of the, the, quote, derivation of all good impulses from bad ones, end quote. And we've discussed this, a great deal throughout the podcast already, but there's this repeated refrain in Nietzsche not to be swindled by the false idea that what is rational must be essentially different from what is irrational in mankind, um, but rather what is rational in us is a development or a product or perhaps a refinement of irrational processes, that every ounce of human decency, of humaneness, of charity, of mercy, of the capacity for self-sacrifice, and the ability for true compassion and empathy, everything we admire in people may in fact be a direct offshoot or growth from this root system of cruelty, suffering, um, proud unreason, and uh, or proud ignorance, tyrannical impulses, and at the very, very bottom of it all, the will to power. And so Nietzsche writes in... Um, Beyond Good and Evil 229 quote, almost everything we call higher culture rests on the spiritualization of and giving depth to cruelty, end quote. And so this is an avowedly and intentionally um, subversive assessment of human morality. And it, it comes out of Nietzsche's determination to reject the Darwinist idea. Um, Or or we might even say, like the popular conception of Darwinism, which is the idea of a self-preservative instinct at the bottom of human motivations and to reject Kantian ideas of reason as the driving force of human action to reject even Hegel and his idea of this instinctual drive towards freedom. This is because even though Nietzsche saw the similarity of his will to power to the Hegelian instinct towards freedom. Nietzsche is very aware of the double meaning of words and the power of connotation and of the human tendency to conflate multiple concepts under a single term. And I think he chose to intentionally give a hard-nosed, tough-to-swallow conception um, or, or, or to give those connotations when describing the driving force of mankind because I don't think, and, and, and I don't think Nietzsche thought that um the will to power will inevitably lead to freedom for individuals or for whole peoples the way hegel did but rather to domination and to submission and to conflict and so he chooses not to associate his grand unifying concept for explaining hum- human motivation with the instinct towards freedom um it's it's why he writes in genealogy of morality uh, book 3 aphorism 19 quote Why stroke the hypersensitive ears of our modern weaklings, end quote. I'm going to go back to Kaufman here, um, same chapter, um, where he sort of brings out, I guess, some of the the philosophical um, disputes, maybe that play out in the background of Nietzsche's ideas here. So he asks, quote, Why Nietzsche would not accept the traditional dualism of reason and impulse? The answer is to be found not in sheer perversity, but in Nietzsche's method. His monism was not derived from ratiocinations about Schopenhauer's metaphysics. Rather, he did not consider it legitimate to accept unquestioned the traditional belief in the supernatural status of reason. Having questioned God, he felt obliged also to question the supernatural origin of reason. Empirical studies, moreover, had led him to assume that all human behavior could be explained in terms of the will to power. His own psychological observations, coupled with historical studies, especially of Greek and Renaissance culture, both perhaps under the influence of Burkhart, and augmented finally by a sketchy knowledge of the natural sciences, had convinced Nietzsche that, quote, the will to power is the most profound fact to which we penetrate. End quote. Now he concluded that not only our passions, but also our intellect might well be interpreted as an instrument of the will to power. Intellect, reason, spirit, or Geist in German, all seemed to him to be manifestations of the same basic drive to which our passions were reducible. End quote. So notice something else here which is very important. Um, Nietzsche presents knowledge, as we said, as something invented by, by mankind to serve its will to power. Um, reason is this faculty which is produced out of the self-overcoming of morality the social life and the demands of the social life the selection pressures determine which groups are going to reproduce themselves and which ones will not and so over time these moralities take shape according to the needs of these various world cultures as a manifestation of this drive towards self-overcoming without which Life can't really, the concept of life doesn't even make sense, right? And so as a result, we now have these instruments such as conscious awareness and self-reflection and so on in order to act as this organizing force for one's drives. And so again, as Kaufman says, he doesn't fall into this simple dualism where um, reason must dominate the passions or um, as, as Schopenhauer would have said, we must use the intellect to negate the will to live. Um, rather, in Nietzsche's um, philosophy, as we touched on before, one of the means of doing this is sublimation, um, of of organizing one's drives, or rather um, engaging in moral self-overcoming. Um, we talked about that in episode nine, the wisdom of the body. You cancel a drive by channeling its, its energies into something else. So you redirect the vehemence of one impulse into another activity. This is like... Um, You know, if you believe that people have an inherent urge to to physically fight and conquer and kill, you could channel that urge into an athletic career and and dominate your opponent um, through competition rather than by actual warfare. Or you could take the urge to acquire social power. You know, maybe you have a domineering urge to wield power and influence. Maybe uh, there are some personality types who apply that to becoming, say, an expert in the sciences. You know, you gain gain social prestige by other means. Um, And so there are other methods too, other than sublimation that Nietzsche talks about. Um, Even though sublimation, I would say, and I think Kaufman argues is the main one, but he talks about spiritualizing a drive. Um, Perhaps an example of this, you know, you, you, you place certain restrictions or limitations on the satisfaction of a drive while simultaneously making it holy. And so we might consider the rituals at the Temple of Eleusis, uh, where ancient Greeks would go and eat magic mushrooms and get incredibly drunk as a means of affecting ego death. They didn't think it was socially acceptable to get drunk and do mushrooms all the time. This was a sacred activity that was done on a yearly basis. Um, And so that's one way of containing or dealing with a drive, right? Um, The drive to dissolution or ego death or what have you is satisfied within this the restrictions and limitations of this ritual context or you could castrate a drive that's how the Christians for example handled sexuality um so Christianity regards the sexual impulse as sinful and only acceptable as a means of procreation and even then that's just that's the next best thing to celibacy. Um, in the words of Paul, "Better to marry than to burn," right? And so the the Christian ascetics completely cut off the sexual impulse from being fulfilled in any way, whatever. So Nietzsche tends to think that's an unhealthy way to manage a drive, but nevertheless, it's still a method. Um, and there is that passage, um, the six ways of dealing with the vehement, the vehemence of an impulse in the dawn that we talked about last time, or I think I guess a couple episodes ago now. And so this is the situation, to briefly recap, reason as a tool of self-overcoming. It's developed through this, protect, this perfection of man that was affected by the group and by the imposition of morality on human beings. And through that faculty of reason, we now have this power to manage our drives in a way that the animals do not. And Nietzsche, far from being like this irrationalist in the absolute sense, as he's somehow portrayed, he instead respects the person of education, the person of letters, the man of duty and of conscience as being this person of higher culture. He reminds us that, um, you know, he's reminding us what the the immoral and lower things that this higher culture is a product of, but he's not repudiating or discarding mankind's achievement of this higher culture. Rather, he celebrates it. He thinks, he thinks we also shouldn't be ungrateful to all that in mankind which gave us the higher culture. And this is the real, this is a real problem, actually. it's one of the central conflicts that he's trying to solve because morality, in a sense, it is that rejection. It is that contempt, that disgust for those drives, which are considered ugly or undesirable, right? That's how the refinement of man was achieved after all. So understand the nuance here. Nietzsche thinks that Christianity, for example, was unhealthy, because it afflicted mankind with guilt and a bad conscience about himself and about his own nature, including his most basic needs, like the sexual impulse. And as such, it demanded these pathological responses to the passions, such as castrating those passions, which means cutting them off entirely, which has all these bad effects on the psyche. But this same underlying tendency, which was... we we, we could say exaggerated to such a great degree in Christianity, it exists in all moral systems, at least to some degree, which is to employ guilt or bad conscience to motivate human behavior as a means of perfecting people. And so Nietzsche writes in genealogy of morality. Um, this is essay two section 18 quote. And, uh, when he says, sorry, I'm not quoting yet. He says, um, this whole phenomenon the phenomenon he's referring to is bad conscience aka guilt so quote we must be wary of thinking disparagingly about this whole phenomenon because it is inherently ugly and painful fundamentally it is the same active force as the one that is at work on a grand scale in those artists of violence and organizers and that build states which here internally and on a smaller, pettier scale turned backwards, in the labyrinth of the breast, as Goethe would say, creates bad conscience for itself, and builds negative ideals. It is that very instinct for freedom, put into my language, the will to power, except that the material on which the formative and rapacious nature of this force vents itself is precisely man himself, his whole animal old self. End quote. Uh, And then I'm going to skip a little further down in the same passage where Nietzsche says, quote, this uncanny, terrible, but joyous labor of a soul voluntarily split within itself, which makes itself suffer out of the pleasure of making suffer this whole active bad conscience has finally we have already guessed as true womb of ideal and imaginative events. Brought a wealth of novel, disconcerting beauty and affirmation to light, and perhaps for the first time, beauty itself. What would be beautiful if the contrary to it had not first come to awareness of itself, if ugliness had not first said to itself, I am ugly? And so, this is a difference. This is perhaps the terminology one could use to distinguish nietzsche from hegel which is to say nietzsche always emphasizes the negative aspect of overcoming he emphasizes the need to to reject and to come into conflict and to annihilate resistance that is the language he chooses to frame his principle for explaining human behavior whereas someone like hegel um you know imagines that mankind is always struggling towards some sort of self-realization and and tends to think in terms of the entire monistic unit right the whole picture whereas nietzsche emphasizes that every individual manifestation of power will eternally demand the overthrow of other powers and so this conflict this overcoming is endless self-reflection and knowledge are as much manifestations of the will to power as every other aspect of mankind And rather than being a goal of a dialectical process they can disappear just as quickly and as easily as they emerged and so nietzsche he recognizes the necessity of morality as a force to shape mankind this is why zarathustra recognizes good and evil as the greatest power but nietzsche's project um, he doesn't want to refute morality he wants to overcome morality as we discussed in past episodes he has his prediction for the extra moral age of mankind, overcoming morality does not mean simply to reject it. but Rather, in this case, it involves the total comprehension of morality, the total perception of what morality is. And by understanding that morality is ultimately driven by this need for self overcoming. What if we could then perhaps measure all the forms of morality, all the forms that morality has taken in human culture? What if we could measure all these individual moralities against the same principle the principle of self-overcoming and so when you hear people talk about the revaluation of all values this is the basis of that idea and it brings us to a strange place because in one sense nietzsche here is being as descriptive and detached and objective about morality as one can be and in another sense, he's looking for a basis for a prescriptive morality, right? That he's thus, he's employing his reasoning, this interpretation of morality towards his own ends. This is where the ought and the is intersect. That's And that's Nietzsche's project here, to understand what morality is and thereby perform a sort of meta-analysis by which we could evaluate moral systems and decide which ones are healthy or unhealthy, Um, or decide what about certain systems, what aspects of certain systems are healthy and which aspects are unhealthy. Because the elements of self-repudiation and guilt and bad conscience and pity, all of these that we inherit from Christianity, these are very unhealthy. But Nietzsche, in some sense, he's looking for a way to retain the elevation of mankind that all of those elements brought forth and then abolish all those pathological aspects to transcend this current model um, and therefore shed all of those negative things that were sort of the cost of mankind's elevation, um, in the Dawn aphorism number 202, this is a section I actually quoted at length from in one of our past episodes, but Nietzsche writes, <clears throat> quote, let us free the world from this idea of sin and take care to cast out with it, the idea of punishment, end quote. And in Genealogy of Morality, Essay 2, Section 19, he says, quote, It is a, a disease, the bad conscience. That is not subject to doubt. But a disease like pregnancy is a disease. End quote. I think that's an incredibly informative metaphor to use. The sense of guilt used by religious morality to elevate mankind is perhaps the birth pangs. The, the pain of which something, out of which, sorry, the pain out of which something new can be born. And perhaps this this is thing that shall be brought forth is this new age of the extra moral man, as Nietzsche talks about elsewhere. So I hope it's clear by now. It's not enough to simply say that Nietzsche was an amoralist or an immoralist or that he critiqued morality or what have you, um, even though Nietzsche himself is guilty of this kind of talk. Because what he's actually doing is to so thoroughly penetrate into the reality of morality and moral thinking in order to produce a generic definition, a, g- a general understanding of it, to perform this meta-analysis and then evaluate moral systems according to whether, whether or not they're facilitating self-overcoming and in a healthy manner or not. And what we mean by a healthy manner is whether the morality promotes self-overcoming in a way which is not self-destructive. Because you can badly manage your impulses and end up pursuing a self-destructive course on either the group level or on the individual level. And so another difference between this type of philosophical activity and the work of moralists like Kant or Hegel or Mill is that Nietzsche advances no systematic theory of values. And he also does not hold that that he alone has discovered the moral code, which would be sufficient, uh, for this self-overcoming for, you know, all of mankind. Um, rather to quote William Blake, uh, one law for both the lion and the ox is oppression. And so Nietzsche does not have his set of values that he personally esteems or, or that, that he then, he does have that, but he doesn't have one that he thinks, um, every that all the world should esteem his values is the wish but he does have his values that he personally esteems um he doesn't think they should be universalized um you know we discussed in the last episode he thinks that qualities like politeness and honesty are a sign of a noble individual we've also discussed how he believes the free spirit the man who passes through multiple convictions and is bound to none of them it's like the intellectual jewel made possible by our higher cultures right and so he doesn't attempt to as kant does outline a series of actions or virtues that are universal and necessarily lead to the increase of self-overcoming to nietzsche that project would probably he would see that as nonsense the good of the owl cannot ever be equivalent to the good of the mouse the law for the lion will never be the same as the law for the the oxen and so this is why i think most often uh nietzsche once again expresses himself in negative terms whenever he talks about moral systems rather than you know in affirmative terms so he writes in beyond good and evil number 225 quote whether it be hedonism or pessimism or utilitarianism or eudaimonism all these modes of thought which assess the value of things according to pleasure and suffering that is to say according to attendant and secondary phenomena are foreground modes of thought. And naivete is which anyone conscious of creative powers and an artist's conscience will look down on with derision. End quote. So, a couple things to note in that passage. For one, pleasure and suffering are secondary phenomena. Um, as Nietzsche says in passages that we went over in episode 9, suffering and pleasure are not objective experiences, they're subjectively generated experiences that are produced by the will in order to push the individual or pull the individual. And so again, since will to power is the key concept behind all human motivation, pleasure and pain exist so that the individual may overcome themselves. And they don't exist as an end unto themselves. Pleasure and pain are instruments to motivate you and not the goal in and of themselves. And so secondly, here in this passage, also notice he says, it's those with creative power, who will easily recognize these theories of utilitarianism or hedonism or pessimism as oversimplified and superficial explanations the creative person recognizes this because overcoming is just as much of a creative process as it is a destructive process and so while you may recognize um you know there's plenty of uh similarity here to the theories of evolution by natural selection again Nietzsche is staunchly against the idea this has anything to do with preservation he thinks it's about everything except that the the caterpillar gives up its existence as a as a caterpillar to become a butterfly something even more you know beautiful and parents who will sacrifice their lives to protect their children or the the salmon sacrifices its life as it you know wears itself down to a pulp swimming up river to spawn and people too you know sacrifice things like Their sexual impulse if they go and take a vow of celibacy or their impulses for desire fulfillment all these things people sacrifice in pursuit of asceticism whether you know that takes the form of becoming a fakir or a monk or a guru or whatever and nietzsche believes this is driven by the same underlying longing to be reborn into a more perfect and more beautiful form you know and what is the ultimate power what is the ultimate elevation of man eternal life immortality and so while it may have been a mistake to aim for this insofar as the world beyond isn't real and all the effort poured into attaining morality that way could be seen as basically just like pouring one's life force off into a funeral urn on the other hand it was a means of instruction for mankind in the art of self-overcoming and the people today who still possess a talent for this nietzsche says are the artists and the philosophers the souls which still possess a creative spark. Um, He thinks these types will have it in them to overcome the old morality, which means to perfect it into something new, something beyond all those old pathologies. And his his vision is for something extra moral. And this can never be the same kind of project as that of the Kantian, though, because it's it's so defiantly anti universal in accord with the underlying principles of will to power. Because will to power is fundamentally and and self-overcoming is fundamentally a drive to be different, to make oneself stand out, to make judgments and distinctions and to become something beyond what one is um, and to constantly expand and overcome. And so it's conflict. It's inherently conflict. And so um, you may recall the episode we did on Heraclitus. This is where I think there is a a commonality in Nietzschean thought and Heraclitian thought. Strife is justice, war is the father of all. And there's a single unifying principle behind everything, right? Um, So go back to that episode, episode five, if you haven't heard that or interested in that. There's an excellent passage in Thus Spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche has Zarathustra relate a conversation with the personification of life itself. And life... uh, taught all its secrets to Zarathustra, which are essentially that will to power is life and life is that which must overcome itself. So this is in book two of Zarathustra, um, which I believe it's the 12th part quote, and life confided this secret to me. Behold, it said, I am that which must always overcome itself. Indeed, you call it a will to procreate or a drive or an end something higher farther more manifold but all this is one and one secret rather would i perish than forswear this and verily where there is perishing and a falling of leaves behold there life sacrifices itself for power that i must be struggle and becoming and an end and an opposition to ends alas whoever guesses what is my will should also guess on what crooked paths it must proceed. Whatever I create and however much I love it soon. I must oppose it in my love. Thus my will wills it and you too lover of knowledge are only a path and a footprint of my will. Verily my will to power walks also on the heels of your will to truth. Indeed, the truth was not hit by him who shot at it with the word of the will to existence. That will does not exist for what does not exist cannot will, but what is in existence, how could that still want existence? Only where there is life is there also will, not will to life, but thus I teach you, will to power End quote And so there we have it. This is the summation of everything we've talked about up to this point morality. The drive to seek truth, all the activities of human life, they're all will to power. Will to power walks at the heels of everything we do. It's a force that's synonymous with life, and life itself, it's always willing to squander even that which it loves in order to serve what it loves most of all, um, which is the thing that makes loving possible, esteeming possible, which makes valuing even possible which is will to power and so what life loves the most is to overcome itself to engage in this never-ending activity of self-perfection and the creation of power and beauty and to squander what came before in the pursuit of even greater things and so while this definition is, is fairly poetic probably a bit too poetic for the scientifically minded amongst you this definition essentially works um I would say as a description of evolution by natural selection as we understand it, I, I see no contradiction in the doctrines there. And so, in any case, this definition and this anchoring of Nietzsche's moral system, if we can even call it that, with, uh, with self-overcoming, that's led to some arguments over the years amongst uh, philosophers and scholars because Nietzsche's explanation here can be taken as monistic, which is to say using one force or one principle to explain all phenomena, um, which may seem odd because it's Nietzsche, um, and he always seems to be questioning simple explanations. But he he says, for example, that Schopenhauer is using the wrong principle, because that's a reference to Schopenhauer. Saying, you know, when you uh, tried to hit the target with the arrow marked with the will to exist, um, or you know, with the will to live, um, that's Schopenhauer's principle of what he says is behind all all life. Uh, Nietzsche says, no, that's the wrong principle. It's not a will to live because everything which can will is already alive, right? So it's the will to power, which is far more explanatory because it even explains behaviors in which sacrifice or self-destruction are involved. Um, but so what he he he's willing to criticize monisms, which he thinks gets it wrong, but it does certainly seem like he is uh, perfectly comfortable with putting forward a monism, putting forward a single principle in the form of will to power. And um, he kind of he explains how he arrives at this monism in Beyond Good and Evil, um, aphorism 36, where he says that we have to ask, quote, whether all mechanical occurrences are not, insofar as a force is active in them, will force, effects of will, end quote. And then he goes on to say, quote, Suppose, finally, we succeeded in explaining our entire instinctive life as the development and ramification of one basic form of the will, namely of the will to power, as my proposition has it. Suppose all organic functions could be traced back to this will to power, and one could also find in it the solution of the problem of procreation and nourishment. It is one problem. Then one would have gained the right to determine all efficient force univocally as will to power. The world viewed from inside the world defined and determined according to its intelligible character would be will to power and nothing besides, end quote. And so I think one could justifiably question at this point why one ought to like want to reduce our explanation of all life to a single factor in the first place. But I think just to to provide to steel man Nietzsche's argument here, Nietzsche's goal, I don't think, is to make things simpler than they have to be. I think what he's doing, actually, he's trying to find as few starting axioms, as few starting principles as possible, and the fewest you could have is one, right? But the fewest axioms you need to, de- from which you can derive all the other principles, right? And so I don't think he's trying to erase all the other motivations and factors. He's trying to find a language for talking about motivation itself in a way that's as meaningful and as substantive as possible of... Um, explaining all the different drives of mankind in the same way of saying, what is the common thread of what we call morality, right? What do we mean? Um, I think he's saying, well, what do we mean when we talk about life and what is the defining factor of life as a, as a phenomenon in this reality? And so that's how I think he comes to this explanation of life and of drives and of man's moral drive, uh, in terms of this one principle. And yet, this monism seems to kind of have to split doesn't it because then you, you have to split it into the impulses that must be suppressed and the impulses that must prevail so if life is overcoming must there be something that is doing the overcoming and another thing which is being overcome uh i'm going to go back to walter kaufman here this is on page 238 because he has an interpretation of this um, quote the will to power is the heir of Dionysus and Apollo it is a ceaseless striving but it has an inherent capacity to give form to itself because its way of manifesting itself is ever new in ever new guises is one of its most striking characteristics Nietzsche speaks of its proteus nature In overcoming or sublimating itself it appears in a strange dual capacity it is both that which overcomes for example reason and that which is overcome for example impulse in aristotelian terms it is both matter and form in hegel's it is both substance and subject End quote uh i do want to stress at this point um i i felt it necessary to sort of bring that up and talk about it but i think that whether one expresses will to power in a monistic or dealistic terms or, or the argument over whether it's best expressed one way or the other. I don't think that debate matters all that much. I don't think Nietzsche himself was really committed to insisting on will to power as a single principle, as a sort of like ontological true reality. And I don't think he would have objected to expressing it in dualistic terms if that was appropriate. As Kaufman says, he might have been struggling towards the same insight when he wrote about Dionysus and Apollo, as this sort of dual force of artistic power in Greek tragedy. And that's all the way back in his first book. And so it's simply a different way or a different degrees of refinement of talking about the same thing. And I think Nietzsche made it clear enough in, well, in a lot of different places in his work, but particularly in Beyond Good and Evil. These conceptual frameworks are instruments, which we use, and we should not confuse them for having some sort of objective reality. So my position on the debate about whether will to power is monistic, um, you know, or not, it ultimately breaks down into dualism or whether it's monistic, and I don't think it really matters. I think the only possibility for a full understanding almost demands that you ignore all these attempts to, like, easily summarize Nietzsche's positions with a single term. And so with that being said, maybe you're wondering at this point, is there any clear Concrete takeaway from these considerations about morality and this Nietzschean model of the human being, because if if we're not going to get a a moral system out of it, so to speak, because ultimately, you know, we've said that while Nietzsche has his own personal evaluations or personal moral preferences, we can't produce a single universal moral code. Is there anything of practical value we can derive from this? For the, this, what I've called a a moral meta-analysis based on the will to power principle um well yes i believe there are several things and i think if you followed along from the beginning of the podcast all the way up to this point this is where i think a lot of the groundwork will bear fruit and you'll be able to use nietzsche's method of analysis from now on at your leisure so let's consider the end of the first aphorism of the antichrist nietzsche writes quote the formula of our happiness a yes a nay a straight line, a goal, end quote. Very straightforward, but just to comment on it, unlike a lot of the old moral philosophers, Nietzsche is not going to tell you what the goal is. He cannot really tell you what the goal is, in fact, but we can say that a goal, and more than that, a clear line to the goal, that is synonymous with happiness, which means the goal has to be both discovered and created. It has to be discovered from within your own drives. That must be examined under the light of reason so you can understand what is the most worthwhile goal at which all my drives aim? What's your goal among all your goals to which all the others can be subordinated? Nietzsche is saying, find that. And then don't be afraid to say definitively and stubbornly, yes, this goal, not the others. The others are secondary, superficial and unnecessary compared with this, my ultimate goal. So for you, that could manifest as anything, the desire to have children or to have a successful career or to be an artist, whatever it is, you have to discover that and then make this goal definitive and non-negotiable and spiritual for you. Nietzsche gets even more direct, uh, in the next aphorism in the antichrist. And by the way, um, I think the reason for this is that the antichrist was supposed to originally be the first installment in a series on the topic of will to power this planned magnum opus but he includes his own definitions of what is good and what is evil speaking in the sense of this meta-analysis of morality that we've been talking about so antichrist aphorism to quote what is good whatever augments the feeling of power the will to power power itself in man what is evil whatever springs from weakness what is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. Not contentment, but more power. Not peace at any price, but war. Not virtue, but efficiency. Virtue in the Renaissance sense. Virtue. Virtue free of moralic acid. End quote. So the goal is virtue, but it's virtue freed from moralic acid. Again, we have to juggle these multiple uses of terms here. Cause what he's talking about is virtue liberated from these pathologies of things like guilt and bad conscience, even though those things were the birth pangs of all the grand opportunities for man that lie before us now. And so now that we have the understanding that all morality was really deep down, it was this self overcoming. We can cut through all the false explanations that past moralists offered and go straight to the deepest level. What is good? What is happiness? And Nietzsche says, overcoming resistance and it's the expansion of power we can then use that those measurements these guiding ideas to evaluate world historical moral systems and we could even diagnose them so to speak so nietzsche explains how one does this in uh, twilight of idols morality of uh, as anti-nature number four quote i reduce a principle to a formula Every naturalism in morality, that is, every healthy morality, is dominated by an instinct of life. Some commandment of life is fulfilled by a determinate canon of shalt and shalt not. Some inhibition and hostile element on the path of life is thus removed. Antinatural morality, that is, almost every morality which has so far been taught, revered and priest, turns conversely against the instincts of life. It is condemnation of these instincts, now secret, now outspoken, and impudent. End quote. So, what he means when he says that anti natural morality is what every morality teaches and reveres, um, I think what he's pointing to is that every morality has, in its striving for the perfection or elevation of mankind, damaged mankind in the process. Um, and I think he. It, Perhaps he would exclude some ancient moralities from this. I think he's referring more to the dominant moralities of today in the past couple thousand years the moralities of the major world religions because there's always been some element that has denied the world or denied the passions um, you know not mastering out of this mastering these passions out of this healthy um you know the, this good noble conscience that the Greeks did or or as Nietzsche perhaps imagined they did. But there's always the element of making man sinful, right? Of nourishing these negative and self-defeating elements of the psyche, like vindictiveness and pity and so on. And so to continue, you know, what uh, all the things that that brings up, whereas perhaps before you might see Nietzsche's rejection of things like vindictiveness or pity as arbitrary or as mere preferences, we now see how these positions of Nietzsche's flow forth from this meta-analysis of morality. He's not just arbitrarily um attacking these aspects of Christian morality. He's diagnosing them as unhealthy, which is to say self-undermining, not conducive to the self-overcoming, which is what morality itself uh is supposed to aim at. There's an excellent post on the the Nietzsche subreddit, which is included in the the wiki there, um, which I recommend you you go check out. It's by Liebensmahler. It's called the Polysemy of the Word morality in Nietzsche's writing um and he shows in that post there's at least four different ways Nietzsche uses the word so there's like the individual's morality there are culturally specific types of morality so such as we might say Christian morality English morality European morality there are supra historical classifications of morality such as the master and slave morality and then there's morality itself And so we can understand Nietzsche might use the term morality in one sense, which is a very negative sense. For example, in the Gay Science 116, quote, Morality trains the individual to be a function of the herd and to ascribe value to himself only as a function, end quote. So what is Nietzsche talking about in that passage? He's describing the power of morality as it acts upon the individual according to its function of serving the self-overcoming of the community of the whole community which is the herd morality right so that's achieved by making the individual and his many drives into mere functions so if you're an individualist as many are you probably look at that passage and you would say morality just as a concept he just says morality right it's presented in a negative light as the herd instinct whereas we might contrast this with beyond good and evil aphorism 32 quote The overcoming of of morality, in a certain sense, even the self-overcoming of morality, let this be the name for that long secret work which has been saved up for the finest and most honest, also the most malicious consciences of today, as living touchstones of the soul, end quote. And so here Nietzsche is talking about morality in a way that doesn't make the moral project seem negative or a herd instinct, but the work of the most noble type of individual, the finest and most honest and also malicious consciences consciences of today. Sorry, I butchered that word twice in a row. But rather than merely accepting the community's morality as by the herd instinct, the independent spirit perceives morality for what it is, and it works towards morality's own overcoming. Um, And this is because the free spirit recognizes that self-overcoming is his nature as the living thing and thus determines that the very thing to be overcome next was once the most powerful force for overcoming. So this is why people can often get confused about Nietzsche's moral positions, because on one level, he's exactly the moralist he purports to be. And on another level, he's the most supreme of moralists. And that even that might still be a little difficult to understand, but maybe by analogy uh, to Zarathustra, I could explain it. I can't remember at the moment if we've discussed it yet on the podcast, but Nietzsche explains in Ece Homo why he chose Zarathustra as the prophet of his of his whole philosophy. And the reason he gives is that Zarathustra is said to be the figure who first distinguished between good and evil and set them apart as opposed in essence. And so naturally, as he was the first to make the mistake, (laughs) he would be the first to recognize the mistake. And so Nietzsche chooses to put his philosophy, his explanation for man and mankind's nature into the mouth of the oldest moralist. But he's the man who moralizes so purely that he gets to the heart of the very activity of morality. And then by that same token, he transcends it. And so we arrive at the overcoming of morality by the road of morality itself. And this is That's the transvaluation of values or the revaluation of all values. It's a creative act and the creation of something new, but it's accomplished as it always is through, not as a rejection of what came before, but it's perfection and it's transcendence. The point at which a drive becomes fulfilled so perfectly that it undoes itself, it becomes transformed. The creator of new values is just like an artistic creator. They're not constrained by the laws of tradition or convention. But yet, you know, rarely, if ever, is there a true innovation that doesn't build upon what came before. Um, And so Jesus, Jesus himself said famously, he came not to abolish the old law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is actually the perfect metaphor for how the old law can be so completely fulfilled as to be transcended by that same act, right? Through being sacrificed, the entire moral system of legalistic servitude set forth in the old testament is overcome and nietzsche uses just this analogy of jesus and beyond good and evil aphorism 164 quote jesus said to his jews the law was for slaves love god as i love him as his son what are morals to us sons of god end quote um And I think Nietzsche is interpolating a little bit there, but I do recall that passage where he says, uh, does it not say in your law that all of you are gods? Um, But so as a final note, uh, we might be wondering, what, what form will this creation of new values take then? What is the practical reality of the transvaluation of values? Is Nietzsche talking about starting new religions? Is he talking about imposing one's will or one's ideology? Is he talking about proselytizing to the masses about his new extramoral age, this new understanding of morality? Um, And in short, the answer to all these questions is that for most of you, probably not. I mean, (laughs) just consider whether you think it's likely you're ever going to do any of those things. Um, Maybe you will, I don't know. But more importantly, whether you think it would be worthwhile to do those things. I think even beyond that, consideration. Nietzsche is not expounding these insights on morality so that you might go on a moral crusade. That's something externally directed and wrapped up with these ideas of like progress and social critique and all that. He says the audience he's writing to are the free spirits, these people who have the opportunity to to, to shape their own character, to apply reason as this organizing force, as we've been talking about, upon all these contradictory wild impulses and so first and foremost before you even can think about embarking on some moral crusade um i think the the first task of the revaluation of values has to be something that occurs inwardly as regards oneself one's own morality one's own relationship to their will to power and the goals of their self overcoming that all has to be understood first and so We'll conclude now with a reading on that very topic. Um, And uh, this is from the gay science. It's number 290. It's an aphorism called one thing is needful. And here's the entire thing to close this out quote. One thing is needful. To give style to one's character, a great and rare art. It is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature. And then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye here a large mass of second nature has been added there a piece of original nature has been removed both times through long practice and daily work at it here the ugly that could not be removed is concealed there it has been reinterpreted and made sublime much that is vague and resisted shaping has been saved and exploited for distant views it is meant to beckon for beckon toward the far and immeasurable, and the end when the work is finished, it becomes evident how the constraint of a single taste governed and formed everything, large and small. Whether this taste was good or bad is less important than one might suppose, if only it was a single taste. It will be the strong and domineering natures that enjoy their finest gaiety in such constraint and perfection under a law of their own. The passion of their tremendous will relaxes in the face of an all-stylized nature, of all-conquered and serving nature. Even when they have to build palaces and design gardens, they demur at giving nature freedom. Conversely, it is the weak characters without power over themselves that hate the constraint of style. They feel that if this bitter and evil constraint were imposed upon them, they would be demeaned. They become slaves as soon as they serve. They hate to serve. Such spirits, and they may be of the first rank, are always out to shape and interpret their environment as free nature, wild, arbitrary, fantastic, disorderly, and surprising. And they are well advised because it is only in this way that they can give pleasure to themselves. For one thing is needful, that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself whether it be by means of this or that poetry or art. Only then is a human being at all tolerable to behold. Whoever is dissatisfied with himself is continually ready for revenge, and we others will be his victims, if only by having to endure his ugly sight. For the sight of what is ugly makes one bad and gloomy." All right, that's all, everyone. Go create yourselves anew into something you can be satisfied with.